It's not just time to get away. It's time to travel with Anita. From around the world to across Georgia, she covers it all. Now, here's the host of Travel with Anita, Anita Thomas. Hello, 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 and welcome aboard Travel with Anita and Friends. It's the 4th of July weekend and the perfect time to celebrate what makes America such a great country. The people who call this country home have, through the exemplary ways of living their lives, made the country proud and made us proud of them. Through their bravery, compassion to see the beauty in the world, and their ability to change and seek redemption in many cases. We are inspired by their actions and encouraged to celebrate their lives. And on today's show, I share the story of four Americans. Richard Etheridge, the first black man to become a keeper of a life-saving station at Pea Island on the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And Peggy Wallace, the daughter of Alabama Governor George Wallace. And her story is one woman's story of reconciliation, redemption, exchange, and connection. A revelation that is really much needed in our country today. Jessica Nabungo, she's the first black woman to visit 195 countries. Yes, you heard me right, 195 countries. And her voyage around the world teaches us that when we trust the good in ourselves, we can also find that good in others too. I'll start today's featured great Americans with the story of Wilma Mankiller. She is the first female deputy chief of the Cherokee Nation. She's also the first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation and the first woman elected as chief of a major native tribe. Born in Tahlequah, Oklahoma on November 18, 1945, her parents, Charlie Mankiller, who is a full-blooded Cherokee, and her mother, Carla Irene Sitton, of Dutch and Irish descent, may not have thought of their daughter, who was the sixth of 11 children, to grow up to accomplish such high esteems in her lifetime and to help her thrive as an activist. In the 1830s, Wilma's ancestors were forced to leave their homeland in Tennessee and travel via the Trail of Tears into the Indian Territory and settle in Oklahoma. This land was where she was born and where her family would start their homestead. Wilma knew that this history was there and how it changed the lives of her Cherokee people, splitting them between two nations and diminishing their culture and way of life. Yet even with the devastating efforts of the Trail of Tears on the Cherokee people, she is quoted as saying, it should also be remembered that hundreds of people of African ancestry also walked the Trail of Tears with the Cherokees during the forced removal of 1838 to 1839. And although we know about the terrible human suffering of our native people and the members of other tribes during the removal, we rarely hear about those black people who also suffered. Now that sounds like, you know, she really was in tune to this even from a very early age. Wilma grew up spending her earlier years on her grandfather's farm, on the land that was granted to her family as part of a government settlement. Now with limited resources in a rural area, you can imagine that her family home was without electricity, indoor plumbing, and many of those day-to-day amenities that so many of us take for granted, like telephones and TVs, but not in her area. 
And during the mid-1950s when Wilbur was about 10 to 11 years old and her family was uprooted again, this time due to a devastating drought, as part of the Bureau of Indian Affairs relocation policy, they then again had to move, this time to San Francisco, where she was faced with cultural shock, poverty, and racism. Now, while this was devastating and she maybe felt that life without any promise was there, there was something really deep inside of her that told her to keep looking forward. In 1969, she watched as a group of American Indians took over the federal penitentiary on Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay. And during this 19-month-long protest, the Native Americans laid claim to the island by the right of discovery in an effort to expose the suffering of American Indians. Now, when Wilma later recalled this event, she stated that when Alcatraz occurred, I became aware of what needed to be done to let the rest of the world know that Indians had rights too. And following this event, Wilma began her work striving to empower Native communities and improve their lives. It was in 1977 when Wilma returned to the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma and founded the Community Development Department for the Cherokee Nation. This organization focused on improving access to water and housing. Again, those things that we take for granted in just our everyday lives. Her first and most important project under this organization took place in Bell, Oklahoma, a small Cherokee community with no running water. So obviously her efforts there led to the construction of things that would provide water. It was the construction of a 16 mile water line. And this project is documented in the film, The Cherokee Word for Water, which was directed by her husband and community development partner of 30 years, Charlie Soap. In 1983, Wilma was named running mate to Principal Chief Ross Swimmer during his bid for re-election as chief of the Cherokee Nation. Despite rampant sexism, including death threats, they won the election, making Wilma the first woman elected deputy chief. Two years later in 1985, Chief Swimmer resigned to lead the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs, leaving Wilma in charge as principal chief, the first woman ever to hold that position and she would go on to be re-elected as chief in 1987 and again in 1991, winning by a landslide with over 80% of the votes. Yay for women, she really stepped forward in that role. And during this time, she tripled her tribe's enrollment, doubled employment, built new housing, health centers, and children's programs in the northeastern part of Oklahoma. Under her leadership, infant mortality declined and educational levels rose. In 1990, she signed a historic self-determination agreement in which the Bureau of Indian Affairs surrendered direct control over millions of dollars in federal funding to the tribe. What an accomplishment. This allowed her to fund several of the projects that she had in mind, including the development of a comprehensive healthcare system for her people which is said to have been something that she was particularly proud of. She also helped to establish the Office of Tribal Justice in the United States Department of Justice, which is a dedicated point of contact for Indian country-specific legal and policy matters. She also helped to found the Women Empowering Women for Indigenous Nations. 
Wilmer retired from her political career in 1995, but continued to play an active role in the Native community, writing, speaking, and teaching about American Indian culture. For her activism and accomplished work for the Cherokee people, she received many recognitions, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor that's given to civilians in the United States, and she received this in 1998. In 2010, Wilma died at the age of 64 from pancreatic cancer. We can learn a lot about her by researching the projects that she started and all of the programs for indigenous communities that carry her legacy of social justice and community development. She is truly an American hero and one that we should recognize as we are recognizing those great Americans for the 4th of July. Women once said, if I am to be remembered, I want it to be because I am fortunate enough to have become my tribe's first female chief. But also I want to be remembered for emphasizing the fact that we have indigenous solutions to our own problems. She is not only remembered, but also honored on the U.S. Mint Quarter as part of the American Women series. A great American woman she is. Coming up next is Jessica Nabongo. Her story inspires us greatly, and I'll share how and why this world traveler can inspire us in so many ways here on Travel with Anita and Friends. is the only thing you buy that makes you richer. And one young lady's life experiences traveling the world, I would say has truly made her rich. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. And travel gives us such a great chance to see the world and meet people who call it home. Jessica Nabongo was born in Detroit, Michigan. She is a Ugandan-American author and world traveler who has visited 195 countries at the very young age of her mid-30s. And what is so special, though, about Jessica is her outlook and her approach to navigating the rural. Her open mind and her big heart come through clearly in her book, The Catch Me If You Can. It is filled with 100 of her stories about visiting 100 different countries. And I had a chance to catch up with her and chat about our mutual love of travel. And I know you would be inspired by our conversation. I sure am. As I see so much of my young self in her, she truly fills me with pride. I start by asking Jessica how she got started to have such a great accomplishment at such a young age. Uh, I've been traveling internationally since I was four. So my parents loved to travel and sometimes they took us with them. So um, that curiosity was really sparked at a really young age. Well, having traveled to every country in the world, is there something that has stood out to you uh, from having done that? Maybe just about people or, you know, just about travel itself or something like that. Is there anything that in particular that you can think of that stands out? 
Yeah, I would say the biggest lesson that I've learned is that most people are good. You know, we're living in these crazy times where there's so much division and it, it seems like there's so much hate, but it's really, it's just a minority that are super loud. Um, and so most people aren't racist or misogynist or homophobic. It's just not true. Um, and you really learn that when you're traveling. So that would probably be the biggest lesson that I learned. Yeah, well, it's, and thinking about that, too, I mean, I found that as well uh, with all of my travels, especially during the time when I was traveling with Pan Am, and even now still as a radio host, that, you know, there are so many more similarities between people than there are differences. And mm -hmm. if we just stop and really focus more on the similarities and sort of go right to the differences, we would really find that there's a lot of ways that we can that we can connect. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That was one of um, the big lessons for me, too. We're more similar than we are different. But speaking of that and culture and things like that, how did you navigate uh, being in countries and places where the culture was so different from what you had grown up with? Yeah, I just fully immersed myself. You know, for me, that's part of the best thing. That's one of the best things of traveling, right? That you get to immerse yourself in these other countries. Like, I don't travel to go to chain restaurants or <laughs> be in places where I'm familiar. Um, I really travel for new experiences. So I love it. Yeah. But same with me. I mean, I really find that fascinating is learning the different cultures and experiencing them, even if there's something about the culture that may not necessarily be something I agree with. I still know that that's the culture and it's a chance for me to learn more about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But what about solo travel? Did you ever travel solo? Yep. I've been to 89 countries solo. So I've done it a lot. <laughs> So how, how did you manage that? Or do you have any tips for people who want to travel solo internationally? I mean, I think the biggest thing is getting past fear. Like, mm -hmm. I think of myself as a good person. So if I think I'm a good person, I don't assume that people I don't know are bad people. It's, I just don't assume that. And so to that end, I'm not afraid of people. And once you're not afraid of people, there's nothing to be afraid of. The only reason I could travel to 89 countries solo is because people are good. Um, so yeah, my biggest tip is just let go of that fear and allow yourself to trust people. And did you find as, you know, traveling as a black woman that you found any anything harder about that that you think may be harder that someone your age that was a white woman may have found it easier? I don't know. Once I was in the country, no. I mean, I definitely I have issues with immigration, but that's not less about me being black and more about me specifically being African, like visibly African. So when I'm traveling on my U.S. passport, sometimes I think it's fake. Or if I'm traveling on my Ugandan passport, they think that I'm going to overstay my visa. So it just, you know, those are the experiences I've had. But outside of that, I would say I don't know. I, I didn't have any negative. I didn't have a ton of negative things happen to me traveling abroad. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting, Jessica, because one of the things that, you know, a lot of times when I get back from a trip, people ask me, how was the trip? And if it's a white person asking, I know they're asking, but did you have a good time? Did you have fun? But if it's my African-American friends, they're usually wanting to know, how was it? You know, kind of navigating that country and that place as a black person. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm kind of like, you know, I, I, you know, I let them know you have to go, you know, more open-minded and not expecting that there's going to be some blockage there. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I feel like you can't let the possibility of something happening keep you from doing the travels because then you're that you're just scared to do anything you know for me i just i 
I really hope that this book helps people get out of it because I feel like people are missing out on so much because they assume something is going to happen. Not even because something definitely happened. It's just the assumption that keeps them, you know, sort of in a prison in some ways. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, fear can really stop you from doing so many things that if you stepped out of your sort of comfort zone and took that chance to, you know, to overcome, you know, fears and things like that, you find that, you know, you're going to really have a great time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now you mentioned your book, The Catch Me If You Can. I love that title because it's kind of hard to catch you, Jessica. You're on the move. I heard. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about the book. I mean, you were gracious enough to send me a copy. I love it. I've looked through it and I'll tell you the pictures are gorgeous. So I just want to hear a little bit more about the book as well. So what made you decide to, you know, to put the book together and those photographs? Oh, my goodness. Are you a photographer as well? Yeah, I am a photographer. Um, Um, So National Geographic reached out to me in August of 2020 and asked me if I wanted to write a book. And so we partnered and came up with like a structure and we decided to do um, that. I would write 100 stories from 100 countries. And it was important for me that um, to include the images. So there's over 300 images in the book as well. Very, very beautiful images. And you look great in each and every one of them. But now, how did you choose the 100 countries? Were those your favorite ones or what made you choose those? Um, it was a mixture. They were countries. I was really intentional because I wanted to pick some countries that people don't normally think about. So like Yemen and Afghanistan and Somalia, because I wanted to really sort of reinstall some huma- humanity with them. Um, and then I also wanted to show beautiful images from those places. So it was a mixture of the images and the stories that I wanted to tell from those countries. And of course, many of them are my favorites. I've been doing photography since 2005. So since I was around 21. Um, so it's it's something that I've always enjoyed doing. It, it's been a hobby for a really long time. And so um, since I always I was traveling at that time, I always just took pictures because when I did my journey to every country in the world, I had no idea that I was going to write a book for National Geographic, you know, so I was just everything that I do, I would be doing even if no one was watching. I can see that. I can definitely see that. Well, how, how do you want the book to inspire others? Um, I really want people to think differently about the world. You know, I think that a lot of people's perception um, about countries outside of the U.S. are shaped by the news media, which unfortunately is really biased. And so I hope that people read these stories and they really begin to think about, think differently about the world and humanity. But now how can we catch you? I mean, do you have a... Are you still blogging and doing things like that? Or what, what are you doing? Are you I'm still- not blogging. I'm like, I gave y'all a whole book. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I'm not. I'm focused on this book right now. And so um, you can still, if you are looking for different links for the book, you can go to the catchmeifyoucan.com slash book. But even just the blog in general, there's older stories that you can certainly read. But um, definitely the most comprehensive stories about my travel is in the new book, uh, The Catch Me If You Can, published by National Geographic. It is out now everywhere you can buy books, support your local bookstores. Jessica, she is truly a great American and such an inspiration. She certainly inspired me to go and check out the list of the country counters to see if I was missing some countries and I was. So now I can add a few more countries to the 98 that I thought that I'd been to quite a few more that I have been to as well. So I'm still counting and I'll let you guys know later, but great inspiration. My biggest takeaway from Jessica is when she said that you have to see the goodness in yourself and then you will see it in other people. 
I think that is a good way to look at the world, whether we're traveling or staying at home. Back in a minute, you're on Travel with Anita and Friends. American Richard Etheridge was the first African-American keeper or captain of a life-saving station. Staffed by himself and other crew members called surfmen, they rescued many passengers along the troubled waters of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. I asked my friend Daryl Collins, director of the Pea Island Cookhouse Preservation, to tell us why so many life stations were needed in this area. Here's the story of Richard Etheridge and the Pea Island Life-Saving Station. During the height of the life-saving service, Every seven miles along the beach, there was a life-saving service station. And these men would have a 24-hour patrol uh, looking for shipwrecks. That section of the Outer Banks is known as the graveyard of the Atlantic because thousands of vessels have sunk off this coast. Some due to piracy, some the majority was due to hurricanes. At Cape Hatteras is where the warm water current from the Caribbean, the Gulf Stream current comes up toward, headed towards the north. And at Cape Hatteras, it meets what is called the Labrador current, which is a cold water current coming down from Nova Scotia and Canada. Hmm. And those two currents collide right at Cape Hatteras. And that area uh, is formed of, it's called Diamond Shoals, which is a series of shallow water diamond-shaped shoals that extends from Cape Hatteras 20 miles offshore. So a ship could run aground 18 miles offshore if you're trying to go through Diamond Shoals. Yeah, because this was, this was, this area here was like 95, I-95. All the commerce moving up and down. And if you had a cargo of perishable goods, some of the captains would take a chance and try to shoot the shoals to make time. Some some made it, but some didn't make it. So if you look at the map, you see all the shipwrecks lined up on the shoals there, 20 miles offshore. There were 29 stations on the Outer Banks, mm-hmm. they were, and they were, they were situated about seven miles apart. The ocean was manned 24 hours a day. At nighttime, they did what was called beach patrol. At a certain time of the evening, two serpents would walk from the station to the beach, one would go north, one would go south. And about three and a half miles down the beach, they would meet their, their neighboring station and they would exchange a, a token that tells the, the name of your station uh, and the district. The serpent would take that token back to the station and give it to the, ki- the keeper or the captain. And he knew from, from that token, he knew that he walked his beat that night. In the daytime, they manned the watchtowers. During the fall and winter months, some of the stations on the Outer Banks average a shipwreck a week. Wow, those treacherous conditions really call for experienced crew. Tell us about Richard Etheridge and his crew. Richard Etheridge was the best serpent on the coast. January 24th, 1880, he was appointed keeper of the P. Island 
life-saving station called Keeper, but some people call it Captain. So he was Keeper from 1880 to 1900 when he died right at the station of uh, mosquito-borne disease. They said back in those days on the sun side of the island, the mosquitoes were so thick, they were darkening out the sun. He probably died of malaria. He was so weak that he couldn't even leave the station. And when he returned from the war, he brought land, he farmed and fished. Uh, and the land he brought is located right now at the North Carolina Aquarium on Rock Island. And that's where his gravesite is, at the entrance of the aquarium, where he's right beside his mother, one of his daughters. Uh, now, who were some of the other men that worked with Keeper Efforts? Well, two of them were, were my relatives, Dorman Pugh with my great great uncle, and then another, that's on my, my, my father's side of the family, and then another one was, was a Stanley Wise, it's my great-great-uncle on my mother's side of the family. Now, you know, they, they, in their career, they, they formed many, many rescues, saved many, many lives, but the most famous rescue was the rescue of the E.S. Newman, which happened in October 1896 during hurricane conditions. That night, on the ocean and the sound had became one body of water. The ocean it was, had washed completely across the Outer Banks. But it kept somebody at the, in, at the watchtower on top of the station. And fortunately that night, October 11, 1896, on, on watch that night was a man named Theodore Mickens. Uh, and then he saw a faint red flare just south of the beach. And the wind was blowing over 100 mile an hour that night. He's standing out on top of like a, a unsheltered uh, tower on top of the on top of the station. He thought his, his eyes might be playing tricks on him, so he called the keeper up, and then they were, they saw this other little faint right a red flare just south of the beach, and then they shot their big flare, which like it's like a like a fireworks that bursts real big and big of red, and so that was a signal to the people on the ship that somebody saw the distress signal. And once they opened up the boathouse and, and took the beach cart out, the water was waist deep. The stations were good ways off from the beach. It took them hours just to get down to the side of the E.S. Newman. By the time they got there, the ship was breaking apart. Uh, the ship was, was had around ground on the outer bar, about 70, 75 yards offshore probably. And the ideal way they would rescue somebody would, would, would shoot a line out to using a black powder cannon called the Lyle gun. And they would shoot a line out to the ship and set up what was called the breacher's buoy, which is breacher's buoy is, is a round life preserver with a pair of breeches sewed into it. And they could save one person at a time off the, the sinking vessel. Uh, on that ship that night was uh, six crewmen, the captain, his wife, and his five-year-old son, Tommy Gardner. So Keeper Etheridge was a pretty good problem solver. So he asked for volunteers. I don't know if these men knew what they are volunteering for, but two men stepped stepped forward, uh, Theodore Mickens and Stanley Wise. And he said, we're going to tie a rope around you and secure the rope to the other serpent on the, on the whatever left of the beach. And I want you to jump into the water and swim out to the Newman. Remember, you got you got all the, the debris of the of the wreck that's now falling apart, washing the shore. So they jumped into the water, swam out the best they could out to the Newman, and was able to reach the Newman. The first person saved off the wreck that night was Little Tommy Gardner. Later, they said they had, they had tied 
the, the mother and the child to the mast of the ship because they said there were 20 foot waves breaking on the shore. And later she said she was singing in his ear because she wanted her voice to be the last voice he heard before they met her maker. Never knowing if we would ever see each other again, but they saved all nine people off the ship that night. What recognition did Keeper Etheridge and his crew get? And usually wrecks like that, you know, you get accolades and letters of recommendation. Uh, you get gold medals, but nothing happened to the crew of the P. Island Station until 100 years later is when they received their gold life-saving medal for the rescue of the E.S. Newman. The next day is a very beautiful day. Uh, the, uh, the captain was walking the beach, and he walked down to where he thought the wreck had occurred. And all thing left of the three-masted schooner was the name board, E.S. Newman, that had washed ashore. The wreck had completely disintegrated. So he, he actually took that name board and gave it to uh, Theodore Mickens as a token of his appreciation. So that was the only thing that they, had, that they got in recognition of the rescue of the E.S. Newman. Cook House Museum, we have that name board on display along with the cannon, the Lyle gun that was on the beach that night, which I'm the part of the Piala Preservation Society. And we have a small museum called the Piala Cookhouse Museum. It's located at 622 Sir Walter Raleigh Street in Manio. And we tell the story of Richard Etheridge and his Piala crew. And a web address? Our web address is the PialaPreservationSociety.com. To learn more about the P. Island Cookhouse and to plan a visit to the Outer Banks, visit the website outerbanks.org and plan a visit to learn more about Richard Etheridge and those amazing rescues he and his fellow surfmen made. Coming up next is the story of Peggy Wallace, the daughter of Alabama Governor George Wallace. Back in a moment here on Travel with Anita and Friends. It's a little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine It's a little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine It's a little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine Let it shine Let it shine this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We all know that song. Welcome back to Travel with Anita. And that song actually fits the story of Peggy Wallace, the daughter of Alabama Governor George Wallace, our fourth and final great American. Here's her story. In all of our lives, we live in moments that turn to days, that make weeks, then months of dawns of hope and sunsets of despair living amidst the sunlight of victories in the gray skies of discontent. But the moments that will one day matter when we look over the shoulder of our past are those when we conquered our fears, stood our ground, sacrificed for someone we loved, and stood up for the rights of a perfect stranger 
because it was the right and righteous thing to do. My life, my story, and my journey began when I was born deep in the Alabama Black Belt, 21 miles west of the Georgia state line. My mother, Lurleen Wallace, was a housewife, and my father, George Wallace, was a lawyer, and later a circuit court judge in Barber County. And on Friday nights, my father and I would watch boxing matches on the black and white television and cheer for the underdog. I lived amidst the crooks and crannies of happiness, lying in the backyards of my childhood, looking for faces in the clouds of contentment that floated by. It was a place to shelter from storms of discontent and have hopes for the future. But for the cause of segregation, there were no hugs and kisses, no going away parties or gifts, and no opportunity to say goodbye to my childhood when we left our home in Clayton, Alabama, when I was 11 years old. It was 1962, and my father was running his second campaign for governor of Alabama. In 1958, he gave up his job as a circuit court judge and ran for governor. He lost. While he was talking about better schools and better roads, and how life would be better for all, his opponent ran with the KKK and promised that segregation was here to stay. His opponent won. My father was at the most important crossroad of his life. His dream of one day being governor of Alabama was at stake. What is more important, he must have thought, it was a moment that would change my family's life and the landscape of Alabama and the nation. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of my father's universe bent toward power rather than justice, and that made all the difference. From that moment on, our lives were hitched to an ascending star of power where the past didn't matter. Power over principle changed my life, and today it remains a threat to our American democracy. I was 12 years old when my father was inaugurated as governor and proclaimed, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. I was 15 when John Lewis, Amelia Boynton, and others were attacked and beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in March of 1965. On May 15, 1972, I was in a college classroom when a fellow student told me that my father had been gunned down in a shopping center parking lot in Laurel, Maryland. The next day, I stood by his side when his doctors told him he would never walk again. And for 16 more years, I watched as he served as governor of Alabama and sought forgiveness for his past. The African-American community received him right here in Dexter Avenue King Memorial Church, forgave him, and elected him for his last term as governor. An act of forgiveness and love. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. 
It means rather that the evil act no longer remains a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. Without this, no man can love his enemies. That was my father's pathway to redemption. From segregation to reconciliation, that was my father's personal journey along his own road to Jericho. I live in the shadow of history. My life was measured by who I belonged to rather than who I was. It was just a simple question that changed my life. In the spring of 1996, my husband Mark and I took our then eight-year-old son Burns to Atlanta to visit the Martin Luther King historical site and museum. We sat silent in Dr. King's church and stood solemn at his graveside. We toured his home, then walked to the newly constructed museum that chronicled his life including his struggle for equality in Alabama. As we moved through the exhibits, we turned a corner, only to face photographs of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the bombed-out 16th Street Baptist Church, fire hoses and dogs in Birmingham, and George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door. Burns stood silent for a very long time, and then a look of sadness came over his face. He looked up at me and said, why did Bahalpo do those things to other people? I realized at that moment that I was a crossroad in, in my life and the life of my son. The man had passed. And now it was up to me to do for my son what my father had never done for me. It was going to be the first step in my journey of building a legacy of my own. I knelt down beside Burns and drew him very close. I said, Papa never told me why he did those things to other people, but I know he was wrong. So maybe it'll have to be up to you and me to help make things right. From that day forward, I knew I had an obligation to my two sons to raise the call for justice. None of us can be held responsible for the circumstances of our birth but each of us will be held accountable for who we become. On August the 28th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and told America that he had a dream. I have a dream, he said, that one day down in Alabama with its vicious races, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. On March the 25th, 1965, after walking for three days from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Dr. King led 25,000 people into the city and up Dexter Avenue to the state capitol to deliver a petition to Governor Wallace requesting that African-American citizens be given the right to vote in the state of Alabama. Governor Wallace refused to meet with Dr. King. On the 50th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery March in 2015, Dr. King's daughter Bernice and Governor Wallace's daughter Peggy stood on the steps of the Alabama Capitol and held hands as thousands of people 
walked up Dexter Avenue toward them. For that moment in time, Bernice and I became the embodiment of that little black girl and that little white girl holding hands as sisters down in Alabama. Dr. King's dream had come true. Bernice and I served as testaments to the power of reconciliation, change through understanding, and unconditional love. I sometimes wonder how the course of history might have been different if back in 1965, Dr. King and my father had only known that one day that little black girl and that little white girl holding hands as sisters down in Alabama would be their own daughters. All of us come to this moment, to this place, on the road of our own life's experience. We are diverse, but we are united in the common belief that a vision for a more just America is worth saving. There's power in who we are and where we come from. All of us have something to share that makes us unique. That is the fabric of our lives. Thank you for joining me today to hear the stories of four great Americans here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Bye-bye.